the markets. We just can't get enough of them. Markets are the drivers of your wealth and investment strategy. Welcome to Magic Markets. I'm your host, The Finance Ghost. I am Mohammed Nala of MoKnows.com. Mo is one of the most respected macro analysts to come out of South Africa. He is now in Canada, so we get his global perspective layered on top of emerging markets expertise. Together, we will unpack the biggest trends and issues and scratch beneath the surface to bring you our insights and share our love and passion for markets and investments. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not financial or investment advice. Please speak to your personal financial advisor. Welcome to Magic Markets. Welcome to episode 20 of Magic Markets. We're really excited as ever to be recording this uh, this week. I've got Mo in Canada in his car with his aircon on that he's just turned off so that we don't hear it. That's because he's uh, boiling up there in our very high-end studio there in his garage. I just kindly asked Mrs. Ghost if she wouldn't mind uh, giving up on Netflix for the night so we can record this. So as ever, Magic Markets with our uh, highly professional setup here. However, Mo, that didn't stop us going parabolic this week. I don't know what happened, but we'll be quite thankful for the 6,000 downloads of our latest show. Uh, I don't know if we're big in Japan or big in the US or big in Toronto or just big in our families, but uh, we're big somewhere and we'll take it, won't we? Absolutely. I think if you look at the chart, it's it's gone parabolic. And I, I was just wondering if Magic Markets has turned into a meme stock or maybe maybe someone listened to our episode where we promised to turn something into a non-fungible token. And so they're deciding to get in on the listens now. Exactly. I mean, theoretically, we would say sell high, but we certainly won't be selling Magic Markets because we, we think this thing's still got a long way to go. So... Uh, nonetheless, it'll make for a fun graph. It does look very cryptocurrency Tesla-esque, <laughs> but hopefully it... Uh, Bitcoin-esque. Yes, Bitcoin-esque. You won't use any Tesla references. That'll just upset me. So episode 20 of Magic Markets, we're going to do something quite fun tonight, Mo. We're going to talk a little bit more about personal wealth creation and a little bit less about the markets themselves tonight, which I think is going to be really interesting. You spoke at a wealth conference in the past week or so, organized by Elite Risk, who, who listeners will know, remember, you know, sponsored a few of our shows. And uh, you spoke about wealth and South African wealth in the global context and all that sort of stuff. And I think it'll be great to just get a, a couple of minutes of highlights from you of some of the interesting stuff you talked about and, and what it means to be wealthy, how it relates to other countries, all those sorts of insights. Yeah, absolutely, Ghost. I mean, I, I wrote about it as well because I've, I've had a couple of requests from people who couldn't make the conference. Um, and so I, I put it up on my, my blog on monos.com. Uh, but very quickly, you know, how, how do we define wealth? And I, it really gets to me because I think a lot of countries like to define wealth based on what your marginal income tax bracket is. And in South Africa, let's let's be honest, you kind of get to your top marginal bracket when you're earning one and a half million rands. Now, the, the sad fact of the matter is that if you compare that to global norms, that's barely scraping around $100,000. It doesn't get you into the top income bracket in the US, for example. So you're very much a, a middle or maybe upper middle income earner at around those levels. So I like to look at something like net wealth. And there was a very good report that went out, which was the Knight Frank uh, Global Wealth Report a little while ago. And, and that showed that even globally, there's this massive disparity. So if you look at really wealthy jurisdictions like Switzerland, for example, you need over $5 million to be in the top 1% 
in, in Switzerland. In the US, it's about four and a half million dollars. And then it ratchets down very quickly. And I like to use China as an example, because that's where you can see this massive disconnect between the developed and the developing world. Because in China, you've got Hong Kong, which a lot of people look at separately. But the fact of the matter is, Hong Kong is now firmly ensconced as part of China. And in Hong Kong, to be wealthy, you've got to have just shy of $3 million to be in the top 1%. But if you then look at mainland China, that number drops off quite significantly and it comes to around $850,000. So we're talking dollars here, right? And so that shows you the, the dichotomy, if you want to call it that, between the developed and the developing world. But how does South Africa stack up? And if you look at the BRICS countries, you know, even if you carve that out, South Africa to be in the top 1% in South Africa, you need like 180,000 US dollars worth of net worth in order to be considered the top 1%. Now, I would hazard a guess that a significant number, an alarmingly large number of those people, even our listeners on the show, would be able to tick that box. And that's really... I guess symbolic of the fact that you've got this massive inequality in South Africa and you've got a cohort of people that have and then you have a large mass of people that just do not have. So South Africa in that context, in my view, doesn't really stack up as well in terms of your global wealth stakes. And that was kind of where we were looking at this. And some of the, the challenges, some of the characteristics of the global wealthy uh, don't really depend on geography. So for example, wealthy people are considered around tax regulation changing against them. They're concerned around civil strife and unrest, crime, for example, in South Africa. And that's not unique to South Africa. If you're a wealthy person anywhere in the world, your list of priorities kind of stack up accordingly. And then very interestingly, as we kind of segue into, you know, how does this, or what does that mean in terms of markets, in terms of how you build your wealth, when you segregate it, when you kind of get a cross section of the global wealthy, and you look at people with a net worth of anywhere from, call it zero to about half a million dollars, a significant portion of that net worth is tied up in their principal residence, their own house. Uh, and, and that significant portion is just shy of 62%. Uh, when you look at, for example, business equity and other real estate, that comes at around 8%. So in totality, you're looking at around 70% of a person's net worth tied up in physical property being their own home or other property and then unlisted assets. Uh, and then as you go up that wealth spectrum and you move all the way to people with a net worth well in excess of $10 million, those numbers change significantly. So from 60% or 62% for the principal resident residents, it falls all the way down to just under 8%. Uh, the portion that increases would be business equity and other real estate that goes from 8% to 50%. Uh, and then the wealthier you are, the more you have in stocks, securities, listed, uh, you know, listed equities, uh, and so forth. And so that's how the wealthy tend to transition in terms of their own asset allocation. Some fascinating insights. If people want some real detail on this, again, go and check out my website. It's mo-nose.com, uh, and you'll find the full post on there. Yeah, it's super interesting, and it shows at the end of the day, people need somewhere to live, right? So when you are kind of middle class, your main goal is, you know, buy your own house. So that's always going to be a big percentage of your wealth for most of us. And and it's only really once you are starting to get into serious wealth creation that you look for alternatives, liquid assets, and that's when you become really interesting to wealth management businesses who want to, you know, go and manage your liquid million dollars um, as opposed to the little sliver you can put in your tax-free savings every year once you're finished paying your bond. So, yeah, there's really interesting insights, Mo. Thank you. And, you know, I think we should talk about property tonight as well. So 
I kind of came up with this very tongue-in-cheek concept for buy to let of calling it buy toilet because my personal view is that returns typically end up in the toilet in South Africa at the moment when you follow one of these strategies. And I suppose a few things have informed that. I mean, I did what so many young professionals do and I went and bought my first property, which was an apartment in Johannesburg. Um, At the time I was working for a bank, so I even got a preferential home loan. And even with that rate, and even with the economy in better shape then than it is now, by the time I sold that that property about four years after buying it, I actually worked out what I would have spent if I just rented instead. And honestly, I should have just rented. There's absolutely no doubt. It cost me money to buy that property. And that wasn't a buy to let, obviously. That was buy to live in. But it just shows how tough the economics are in these properties. If you're only going to hold them for a few years, you just have to claw back the epic taxes in South Africa. It's transfer duty on the way in. It's an estate agent on the way out. It's big numbers. So, you know, my concerns around buy toilet, as I like to call it, um, are, are significant. And I think it's a generational thing. A lot of people are advised by family members and that, you know, build a property empire, you know, get on the property ladder. But Mo, you quite you quite like property. You like to put the, the Mo in property mogul. So uh, what's your... Be- we were chatting off air a little bit about property in Canada, some of your property experience here. I mean, I think it would be really interesting. You've lived through a few more cycles than me, evidenced by the slightly gray beard that I can see on the Zoom call, just one or two grays there. And it'll be good to hear from a gray beard like yourself, a classic property boomer, uh, you know, when it goes well, when it goes badly. Give us some insights there. See, now you're just being impolite calling me a boomer. <laughs> no disrespect to boomers. Look, I mean, you're correct. I've, I've I've lived through, I guess, a couple of more property cycles than you have. In fact, you know, by just by by, by sheer luck, I guess I had exposure to 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 the property market for, I guess, the better part of my my adult life. Uh, you know, early on in my life, still at varsity, got kind of called into to look at family property portfolios, help manage those, uh, and you know, again in in jurisdictions now, certainly you know, not just South Africa but outside of South Africa as well. Um, what is striking for me is that I remember the property market, believe it or not, back in the 90s. I can believe I it, looking at your beard. I can, I can certainly believe it. Uh, I, I was still quite young at the time. But, you know, back then, interest rates were a lot higher. Not everyone was a property mogul. Uh, and then as money cheapened, globally, as money cheapened, everyone jumped onto the bandwagon. And that's not a bad thing. Property is usually your first step on the rung of wealth creation for most people. Uh, a part of the reason, as you've alluded to, is that people have to stay somewhere. And a lot of people say, you know, they'd rather own their own property if they're in a fortunate enough position to do so, uh, because a lot of people that can't, they'd rather own their own property than renting and essentially paying off someone else's mortgage or someone else's bond. Uh, now, on that basis, over the last several years, we've seen interest rates decline significantly. That's generally correlated with property prices that have ratcheted up in value as well. So a property that would have cost you 100,000 rands all the way back then, it's going to cost you a couple of million rands today. Uh, In terms of buy to let, you know, there's all of those hidden, and and you've written about it quite a bit. It's like on the Monopoly board, the first two properties are brown, and that's because it's the buy toilet, right? But (laughs) if, if you look at it, once you factor in the cost of insurance, once you factor in the cost of maintenance, once you factor in all of these hidden costs behind the scenes, it's not necessarily going to always be the most compelling 
investment out there. It's why I look at property in the context of a broader portfolio. Yes, I still own property. It's a portion of my portfolio. But most importantly, and this is the point I like to hammer home because I've written about it a lot. I think we've spoken about it on the show as well, is property like any other market is cyclical. Nothing goes up in a straight line. And if you think it's going to go up in a straight line and it's your sole path towards wealth creation, well, lo and behold, I think market conditions, as you're experiencing them now down in South Africa, are really sifting out the the wood from the trees. And it's showing people that, yes, your property can sit vacant for a period of time. Yes, your rental yield is not going to be fantastic. And once you factor all of that in, you've got to say, is the capital appreciation enough for me? Why am I actually in this? Am I a through-the-cycle investor or was I looking to flip this for a quick buck? Uh, And those are critical questions that you've got to answer and ask yourself, not just with a property investment, but with any investment. So Mo, the, the brown, the brown properties in the buy toilet section, it's ironic because actually the cheaper properties are doing better in South Africa at the moment for investors actually. And yeah, sometimes you have to collect your rent, you know, with a scary looking dog next to you in, in some property areas. But at the end of the day, the yields are high and uh, the capital growth is, is actually the strongest sector right now. So I had a look at the FNB property report and yeah it's really interesting i mean the only area that's really growing or the property value bucket that's really growing is kind of that sub one million mark Uh, the high-end stuff has been smashed in south africa because you know there's just a worry around land in general and you don't want to go and sink 20 bars into camps bay if you're worried about land but uh, even the sort of typical buy toilet levels as i call them which is not a reference to the quality of property it's buy to let as an asset class which is kind of between a million rand and two million rand which is where i think most people are buying apartments to rent out in your sort of typical middle class areas and the property growth is basically zilch I mean, it's like 0.1% you just don't claw back the costs from that you know you really don't the other interesting points on the monopoly board now that i think about it i'm pretty sure the best properties are purple and now i feel like that's just a you know, useful coincidence. It's clearly the color of wealth. So hopefully that uh, that works out for both of us. So speaking about the color of wealth, you know, how does, in your experience, how does the market in South Africa look and feel versus the economics somewhere like Canada, which is a very, a very different market actually for property. I mean, I can certainly say South Africans' eyes always get very big when we talk about property prices overseas. It's the typical story, right? You can move to London and, you know, what can I buy for my money? Well, you sell your middle-class home in South Africa and you can buy a bus stop in the dingy part of London and that's about it. So, you know, what is the story in Canada and how does it compare here? I'm so glad you asked that because, you know, that's been one of the most amazing eye-openers for me, you know, when I got here around two years ago. And, you know, just simple psychology around it. I mean, I've been watching the Canadian property market for, for some time. And first and foremost, I want to say that the capital appreciation is definitely there. I think there were two markets in the world that never corrected post the subprime crisis, and that was Canada and Australia. So that already tells you that whilst everyone else took a bath in terms of their property values, those two markets kind of plateaued, flatlined, and then when they started rallying, they started rallying from a much higher level. So that's something to bear in mind. But from, I would say, even 2016, where markets here kind of topped out, had a short-term correction onwards, the Canadian market has had solid double-digit returns in terms of price every year for the last five years. Now, that's absolutely stellar. There's a lot of talk in the Canadian media around affordability, uh, and it's a big story. I mean, people really right now on a double-income home, even if you're a professional, you're struggling to afford property 
in Toronto, for example, or in Vancouver, your main urban centers. Uh, there's been a lot of foreign interest in this market. So a lot of Chinese investment has come in, for example. Some people cite that, you know, there's, there's risks of money laundering. So regulation has changed to try and capture, capture that. In terms of yields, my understanding is right now down in the South African market, you're probably looking at rental yields of around 35 to 5%. Now, the simple fact of the matter is you could probably find comparable yields to that up here, despite the fact that property prices are as elevated as they are. So you've had phenomenal capital appreciation. Rental yields are there and thereabouts. Your cost of funding is obviously substantially lower. So in South Africa, on a home loan, uh, ghost, what are rates going for now? I mean, if you're funding a home loan, if you're at prime, I don't know if people still do prime minus or if that's considered subprime. Uh, what are mortgage rates down there at the moment? All about the subprime here. No, I mean, somewhere around, you know, seven and a half, eight percent. It's going to be somewhere, somewhere around there. And, and your cost of money in, in, let's call it Canada, in the US for a mortgage is roughly half that, if not slightly less. And that's reflected in much more inflated capital prices on homes. But here's the psychology point I wanted to raise, which was just completely mind bending for me, is hypothetically speaking, in South Africa, if you were to go in and you saw a property listed at a million rands, now you could go in and say, okay, great, I'm interested, I want to buy this thing, I'm going to go put in an offer, at, let's say, cheeky, let's say 900 or 950, let's see if the seller is interested at those kind of levels. That's the kind of psychology down there. When you come up here, it's completely turned on its head. So I came into this market and if you look at, again, hypothetically, let's say a million dollar property and you say, okay, great, let's go in. That psychology doesn't work here because properties, wait for it, in Canada are trading at over asking prices. So it's completely the other way around. If, if your property is listed at a million dollars, for example, it's not uncommon for that property to, to change hands at 1.1 or even 1.2 million. I've seen properties trading at 150, $180,000 over asking prices. Not only that, people get into bidding wars. So you go in, it's a competitive bidding process. Uh, I know of someone who sold a property here recently where they had showings for one weekend. So that's just two days. They had had something like 45 viewings over those two days and ended up with eight offers, shortlisted four of them, and traded at $100,000 over asking price. So these are the dynamics that you pick up here. They're not necessarily unique to Canada. I, I have friends in the United States. There's some markets there that similarly are running super, super hot. The question mark is, is it just a product of cheap money uh, or is it a product of you know, supply demand dynamics that are out of kilter or a combination thereof? Sounds like you need to hire Goldman Sachs to help you sell your property there and run an entire competitive process due diligence and, and close it off uh, a few days later. It also sounds like some of these Canadian real estate agents could give Bob Van Dyke some lessons on how to close a gap to book because it seems like Nuspass and Process still don't know how to do it based on Tencent. So maybe that's our top tip for Magic Markets this week is, you know, if you're a Nuspass activist shareholder, you may need to just go and, and find yourself a new CEO there in Canada. Probably a lot cheaper than uh, than Mr. Van Dyke, I've no doubt, and and better at closing the uh, gap to book, Mo. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that NASPERS process gap to book and the selling out of the 10 cent shares, I mean, uh, it, it, we've spoken about it, if I recall, on this show as well. And it's a thorn in the side of South African shareholders. In fact, today was a thorn in the side of, of any 10 cent shareholder. The stock at one point in time was down all, uh, around 10% on the day. Um, that, that said, you know, in terms of narrowing uh, price to book, not just on NASPERS, we go back to the whole property discussion here. You know, there are properties that have sold, uh, they call it unseen. So during the pandemic, people were saying, okay, you know, we can't have show days. Some of these properties have changed hands without the buyer actually even going to physically inspect the property. And that is terrifying. It's a terrifying kind of nugget that I throw out there because it really shows you this massive difference in psychology. Uh, it's it's it maybe euphoria in this market versus the, the depths of despair down in South Africa. I want to go back to the point I made right at the start is when you're looking at any investment, whether it's property, whether it's an unlisted business or a listed business, things are cyclical. You know, there's a great book by a guy called Howard Marks, and I can't recall the title right now, but he looks at cycles and he says, all, my, all markets trade in cycles. I, I had an old saying when I was down there, I used to maybe overuse it. And I said that markets tend to capitulate and extrapolate at the same time. And so I just, I have a question mark over that saying, you know, is the South African market just so depressed now, maybe for good reason, maybe without, and once the noise sorts its way out of the system, will there be an exploration of value that comes through? Will that discount to NAV, if you want to call it that, to use your NASPERS process example, slowly get you know rectified? And similarly here, will these levels of absolute euphoria yield to a correction in markets? And you're going to have to look at this on a global scale, again, build it into your risk tolerance, your strategy to say, I'm a through-the-cycle, long-term investor. What role does any investment have in my portfolio? Does it make sense? And if it makes sense, then ride through the waves, ride through the cycles. It's, again, not investment advice, but that's just the way I look at it from my own investment psychology, uh, and I just think that's, that's good investment strategy. Now, and the problem we've got down here is affordability. So you just have to look at economic growth, unemployment, all of that. I think house price growth down here is going to be mooted for as long as the economy is, and... How do these people afford houses? They need jobs. They need to earn more money. It's it's just one of those things. And the problem with buy toilet is that if there isn't capital growth, you know, unfortunately, there's not Canada down here, clearly. And um, you know, we we certainly are not uh, dealing with rampages at show days and twenty bids above asking price. I mean, people take three months to sell their house, and by the end of it, they look very forlorn and sad and wondering why they bought a property in the first place. I mean, I've seen. A bunch of people have now been messaging me on Twitter with their horror stories around not having tenants for six months. And oh, it just gets it just gets hideously ugly, you know. And I think that everyone's got a story like that. But obviously that's that's residential property. And, you know, I saw some news flow today about how resilient Cape Town CBD has been in terms of office property and all that kind of thing. I'm not sure I've seen that with my own eyes, but you know, I've seen the reports and we'll see where it goes. So I recently invested in the South African property index because I think it has bottomed out. I made the decision driving back from Cape Town CBD during rush hour for the first time in months and months, and it was busy. I thought, hey, you know, all these people were either at the mall or at the office, and either one of those pays rent into a REIT. So my tax-free savings had just reloaded for the year, and I thought, okay, this is at the bottom, and that was what I decided to do. Maybe just before we sign off on the show, I've had a few questions from people about global REITs, and, and that's more of a macro view Mo, it's clearly your speciality on this show. And uh, I was wondering if you have any views on global REITs. Is it something you invest in you know, as part of your portfolio? 
Yeah, so again, I've, I've got a portion of the portfolio that I invest in, in global REITs. Uh, the rationale is, is quite simply the, the great yield plays. Uh, March last year was a very uncomfortable time. Uh, I did take an active decision even before pandemic uh, to say that, you know, one of the mega trends I was watching is that there's this oversupply of retail in, in many key geographies. Uh, and I specifically honed in on industrial property because I said, you know, Amazon's growing at a phenomenal pace. I don't want to buy Amazon at this very extended multiple, but there's warehousing. And warehousing is, is big business. So I looked at a couple of good warehouse REITs. One of them in Canada I looked at a long time ago was a, a stock called Dream Industrial, uh, which is an industrial REIT specifically. There's another one in the US, which is called AmeriCold, and they focus specifically on refrigeration and, and cold storage effectively. And so those are the kinds of niches. That's what's so nice out here in, in a global market is you can really hone in on very specific micro niches that you want to play. Uh, and those are the kinds of stocks that I had put into my portfolio. They're all yielding pretty decently. You know, again, if you can tie in a global REIT at a 5% type of a yield, sometimes higher, you know, when, when, when I was buying Dream Industrial, the yield on that was over 10% at one point in time. And again, if you like the company, you buy it, every time it dips, you just keep on adding more. You can lock in a hard currency yield of between 5 and 10%. Now, on a risk-adjusted basis, that looks fantastic. Yes, a lot of these REITs do have leverage in them, so you've got to be cognizant of that. And they're also higher quality players, so lots of activities happen in, for example, Simon Property Group, and they've gone and bought out a whole bunch of other properties. It's an exciting space. It's a space, we're out of time today, but it's a space, maybe we can do an entire show just on, on, on property. It's a space that I like for a portion of the portfolio, but again, I view that with a lens of investing through the cycle, and at the same time, trying to focus on certain mega trends that will allow outperformance in specific micro niches. Absolutely. And as a final point, go and look on the JSC. There's a bunch of different REITs. And for example, Sirius Real Estate is listed on the JSC, but all of their properties are in Germany. And you can go and look at the price to book on that thing and compare it to property funds that are only invested in South Africa or maybe Office Heavy, for example, trading at huge discounts to book. Go look at Sirius, compare that to what's going on here, and you can immediately see the JC may be the exchange, but the underlying assets are all over the place. And, you know, if you go and do the reading, you can actually find all kinds of interesting things to invest in on the JC. Mo, as you correctly pointed out, that's enough buy toilet for tonight. And uh, I look forward to a very interesting show ahead of us next week for our 21st. Always an exciting birthday, 21st birthday. Something special planned for that. And uh, we will chat then. Thank you for your time, Mo. Thanks. And thanks to our listeners. Remember, subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice and give us a phenomenal rating. We, we really, you guys are what makes the show great. Remember to visit thefinancegoes.com and monos.com for more detailed insights. This podcast was for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial or investment advice. Please consult your personal financial advisor.